0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We love new things, don't we? I mean, admit it, we, we love new things. A new house, a new car, a new shirt, a new pair of shoes. Who doesn't love a new pair of shoes, right? I mean, new things, Um, they don't always have to be new, just new to us. If I ever get to go to... Um, to Pisa and see the Leaning Tower of Pisa before it becomes the Fallen Tower of Pisa. It will be a new sight to me. I will love to see that. And, uh, you know, I wonder if there are people who live in Pisa who, like, think, you know, walk by it all the time and they, you know, topple over. Just, you know, they just want it to go down so the people will quit coming to their town, you know, just topple over. I can imagine if it ever does happen, there's a conversation, like, in a barber shop or somewhere. You know, somebody will say, did you hear what happened? No, what happened. The tower—it fell. No, it didn't. Really, did it fall? Yeah, it's the fallen tower of Pisa now. And well, finally, people will stop coming. No, the new shop opened down the street. Um, the fallen tower of Pisa, and people are going to come to see it now because it's a new—you know—new T-shirts are even being made. Old things can become new, and they're new to us. Uh, exploring caves. Ever go cave exploring? Uh, when I, where I grew up in in near the Dayton area, just north of us, there's a place called Ohio Caverns millions of years old but you know school kids go down through that and learn about stalactites and stalagmites you know these uh, formations that took you know millions of years to form and you see them and you know oh they're the first time you ever see it it's new and you go home and you tell your mom about it and she says where's your jacket and I said I think I left it on the swing set that's a different story you don't need to know about that but I've often wanted to go back into lost and found and see if it's still there you know 40 years later New things and old things, you know, we love new. It's a thrill, you know, to, to find something new. Eat a new dish that you've never had or meet somebody from a different part of the world you've you've never, you know, been to or, or whatever. You know, read a great novel. The word novel actually means new, you know, you get this new story. Give me this new tale or, or see a new fil- film. Um, hard to wa- some movies you can watch over again, Princess Bride, no matter how many times, it never gets old. But some are, you know, you don't want to see it. You've already seen that movie. And the quest for new sometimes causes us to despise the ordinary, the common, things that we see all the time. I wonder how many people live in Pisa who never actually look at the tower the way tourists look at the tower. Maybe they don't even, you know, they live on the other side of, I don't know how Big piece it is, maybe they live on the other side of town and they never even go over there, I don't know, you know. How many people you think live in Rome who have never been to the Vatican? I, mean, I imagine there are a lot of people there. I imagine there are people who live in London who have never been to the British Museum, even though it's free to get in. They've never been to the National Gallery or never gone into St. Paul's Cathedral. I used to live in Canton. I knew people who loved football. I mean, they loved football. They were, they, every Sunday they were on the couch watching the Browns, being disappointed. But they had never been to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's right there. You, you know, it's, you, you go past it. We lived in Canton South, so if you were going anywhere north, you'd go right past the Hall of Fame all the time. And they had never been there. I met many people who had never been to the Hall of Fame. And you know why, right? It's familiar. We even have this saying, it's axiomatic, familiarity breeds contempt, right? We see it all the time. We're used to it. We just, you know, it's, it's, it's old news. We don't want to, um, we get used to things, it becomes normative, and human nature is to take it for granted. Uh, the first time I ever traveled outside of the United States, I went to uh, Maputo, Mozambique. Mozambique is one of the poorest countries in the entire world. It 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 rivals Haiti in terms of of total poverty, and I remember going there for the first time and seeing poverty like I had never seen poverty in my life. You know, I thought I grew up poor. I tell people that you know I'm so poor we couldn't afford to pay attention. You know, this is how bad it was when I was a kid. But, you know, I went and saw real poverty. People who lived in a one-room house, they were the middle class because there were a lot of people who lived in, in very crude structures, people who lived in the city dump and lived off of what they could get to eat or sell from the dump. It was it was tragic. When I returned home, I saw my life through completely different eyes. I Maybe mean, yeah, I told you, I met a man in, in Africa who said to me, he says, is it true? Is it true in America that you build houses and you fill them with things, and then you build little houses out back and you fill them with things? (laughs) And I came home and I saw my house with a detached garage and had a completely different view of what he was talking about. Absolutely true. The way we see things, you know, the the familiarity, the, the contempt that is bred in there, the way that we take things for granted. In the Gospel lesson, um. G, uh, Luke has Jesus moving closer and closer to Jerusalem. Uh, there's been a lot going on in Luke's gospel, a lot of healing, a lot of teaching, a lot of preaching. But. Um, there was this bit where we've been for a while where um, Jesus is uh, is in a, um, a back and forth with uh, religious traditionalists who don't understand why he's hanging out with all sorts of undesirables. People like tax collectors and prostitutes and garden variety centers and don't understand why he's doing that. And then there's this big back and forth. Uh, and Luke records a lot of Jesus's remarks. Some are... Some are sort of uh, implicit and gentle, others are more direct and cutting, and, and, and so there's this long section of back and forth, but now we're back on the travel narrative. Back on the journey, heading to Jerusalem, and, and Jesus is, uh, he's going through, uh, Luke says, this, this area between Samaria and Galilee, and he's going through a little village, and on his way, he, he's traveling that way. And, and as he does, um, we have this story of these ten leprous men who come out to meet Jesus as he's journeying down this road. I want to stop for just a moment and tell you that leprosy in the ancient world was the most fearful disease that a person could have. I mean, it was it was it was the, the most feared disease. Other diseases that that existed, you know, that weren't known. They were internal. You had no. There was no. No knowledge of this, you wouldn't have. A, you know, unless you had symptoms, even then it would be. You know, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe you'll get over this, but not leprosy. Leprosy was a death sentence. Um, it, it began with sores on your body and then it would, it would, you know, have this devastating effect. It would deform facial features. It would, it, it would cause limbs to lose, um, all, all nerve endings. There are reports, even, uh, recent reports of people who have had, like, entire fingers eaten off by rats in their sleep, not knowing it because they had no nerve endings in their, in their extremities. It was an awful, awful disease. What's more, a person could live years with leprosy. But they weren't allowed to live in their community. They would be quarantined. At the first sighting of, of of skin disease, they would be quarantined away from the community and have to live in a community of no of people that had you know were all lepers. So you would be taken from your family and friends and moved outside of town. And if anybody came near you, you had to yell out to them. Even if perhaps they had come in by accident. You have to yell out unclean. And if people knew you had leprosy and came near, they would be contaminated as well. It was an awful disease. It was awful because of what it did to a person's body and that it was a a death sentence, but also in what it did to their their sense of relationships, the way that it it extricated them from all relationships. So I, I want you to imagine yourself living in an ancient world. Men, you're you're. Fishermen or or maybe you're bricklayers or something like that and women your your mothers and grandmothers okay so you're living in an ancient world um you um you're doing whatever you're doing you know you're fishing you're pulling in a net or maybe you're doing the dishes or whatever you might be doing and you look down and you see a, a little white spot on your arm you know, and it's it's kind of bothersome. It doesn't go away, you know, and and you talk to yourself, and you're like, oh, it's not that bad, you know, it's whatever, but it won't go away, and, and it, you even try to get a knife, you know, and you're off by yourself, trying to cut it away, and it, it comes back. And maybe a week or two later, another one appears on your other arm, and now you're beginning to panic, and then one appears on your hand, and you're really in a panic, and then one of your friends notices it, and they make mention of it. And before you know it, There's a priest knocking at your door, demanding to see the signs of the sores. And you have no choice. You roll up your sleeve and you show them the sleeve. And before the day is out, before the hour is probably out, you gather a few precious belongings and you are quarantined in a village wrecked with with all sorts of pain and suffering. Years go by. Your disease gets worse. Your new normal was just trying to make it through the day. And then a rumor. There's this fellow. His name is Jesus, Yeshua. He, he's a prophet. He's a, he's, a, he's a wandering preacher. But there are rumors about him that he is a miracle worker, that he can do things that nobody else could do, that he has healed people. He even reportedly has raised the dead, cast out demons. The, the, you think to yourself, it's probably hyperbole. It's probably more that you know more fiction than truth. But let me ask you, what would you do? You know what you would do. You would camp outside the road and you'd wait. There's a small bit of hope. but That's all you need, just a little bit of hope. And you hang out by the side of the road, and and, and there are others. In Luke's story, there are nine others, and they too wait. Because they need a miracle. Only a miracle will do. It takes a miracle to get you well, to get you back to your family. Here's what Luke says. As Jesus entered the village, ten lepers approached him, keeping their distance. They're staying within the confines of the law, keeping their distance. They called out to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Master, have mercy on us. That's what they need, don't they? They need mercy their entire life, wrecked. Someone just have mercy on them. If you can do anything, do it. What's his answer? Go show yourself to the priest. You'd think he would come up with another thing like, you're well miracle done it's over look at you. but go show yourself to the priest now luke doesn't give details so i fill them in um i i imagine i imagine what happened okay this is my imagination here not this isn't holy scripture but my imagination is that they look at each other and kind of befuddled you know and and that they turn around and they start to walk and and maybe they look down and think you know i, I don't think it was instantaneous i think maybe it was a little gradual wasn't there a spot right there or, you know, was it? And they begin to walk and, you know what? I think this stuff is going away. And they, they look down and, and, and maybe someone looks at another, Albert. I imagine one of them is named Albert. Albert, you look, your face, it looks like a teenager. My goodness. And, and, and then they realize it's happened. They realize, I mean, what would they be thinking? I don't think it's just the fact that they're healed. I think it's the fact that they can go back to their family and friends, the people that they longed for and loved and missed. And I can imagine them talking about, I can't wait to see my wife or my, my husband or my children or my grandchildren. I can't wait to see these people. I imagine some guy was saying, and I want a fish taco. You know, I, I just have wanted one for a long time. Well, maybe not. Anyway, I, I want, you know, and they're, they're going back. They're heading home. Luke says, um, all except for one of them. One of them turned around, and he went back to find Jesus. And he began to praise God, and he fell at his feet, and he began to thank God, to thank Jesus. Dr. Ozon, from doxology, they began to praise God. And Eucharisto began to give thanks, the same root from which you get the word Eucharist. He praised God and he thanked Jesus falling at his feet. And Luke, always the clever storyteller, holds back one detail. He, he always holds back a detail. You know, one little thing that's going to put a, a big twist in this story. And he was a Samaritan. A Samaritan? A God-forsaken some, Literally, God-forsaken Samaritan? Somebody who's... Outside of the kingdom of Israel, somebody who's so far removed from, and he was a Samaritan. Weren't there ten who were healed? Jesus says. You know, I think one of the real tragedies of living in the Western world is that we just have so much. We have so much. Not just in terms of stuff. We have lots of stuff. Goodness gracious, we have stuff, right? Not just in terms of that. But we have so much in terms of the riches of the kingdom of God. Time would not afford me the opportunity to tell you the stories of great men and women who have given their very lives for the things that we take for granted. People who risked everything. People, I mean, famous ones like Luther, Jan Hus, you know, William Tyndale, choked at the stake and then his body burned for having the gall to translate the Bible into a native tongues of people who otherwise couldn't read it. Cramner, Ridley, Hugh Latimer burned at the stake. Why? For having the, 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 the desire to keep the, the Anglican church pure from the power of corruption. Oh, Polycarp, was he 90 years old? He, he wouldn't sacrifice to a Roman emperor. He was a bishop, refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods. And for that cause, he was going to be burned at the stake. And, and when they went to tie him, he says, don't tie me, I won't run. And he's burned alive. Gave everything. The Hebrew writer says of people like this, of whom the world was not worthy. We have the Bible in our own language. And it collects dust on shelves. We have churches where we can worship freely without any sort of threat. Oh, you know, I don't know. Maybe not. The sacrament, this transforming power of grace. Take it, you know, we could get out a little earlier. Now, nobody here, but that could happen, you know. That that would happen some places. All the riches of the kingdom, we take them for granted. A a number of years ago, when I was a seminary student, I was in this class. It was called uh, The Sacraments in Church History. It's fascinating. Um the professor was about as dry as watching, uh, you know, um, I don't know, whatever. But it, 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 it was a thrilling subject matter, and he was a delightful person. Not very thrilling, but delightful. Um, And and so anyway, he would take us, the one time he took us on these field trips, and we went to several of them, which was a highlight of the semester for me. Um, And we went on these field trips, and and, uh, we went to the Roman Catholic Cathedral in Lexington, and we went and and talked to the the dean of the cathedral there um, about his view on the sacraments. And we we went to a a Lutheran church and talked to a Lutheran pastor, and and we went to a Baptist church, and, and, and we went to an Orthodox church. And I don't know if you've ever been to an Orthodox church, but, man, they really, I mean, in terms of just pure bling inside the, the, the church, it's amazing. Okay, and so they have this—they um, have this like half wall, like a, like a screen of sorts that goes right across the front from one side to the other, and um, and it it kind of it kind of isolates the altar from the nave. So if we were here and there was one, it would be like straight across, right here in the middle. And there are doors in the center that open, and, and there's a door on the far side, uh, and and so the priest was telling us about. You know the orthodox uh, uh, liturgy, the 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 divine liturgy and and, and that he shows us well, here's what happens and, and and at two o'clock in the afternoon, maybe on a tw- Tuesday or Wednesday, you know otherwise empty church except for a dozen or so students, and he walks over and he, he goes through the side. And he comes around behind the altar and then opens the door. And if, you, if you've never seen this, it, it's quite dramatic. You know, you have this opening of the door and here's the, the altar and, and the sacrament on the altar. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite stunning. And I noticed how very careful he was with all of his movements as he was going around, you know, from place to place. And somebody else noticed it too and, and actually asked him about it. And he said something. He said something like this. We who handle holy things must be careful never to allow them to become profane. We who handle holy things must be careful never to allow them to become profane. You know, it's not just priests in churches who handle holy things. Mothers who care for small children, fathers who care for small children handle holy things. Waking up in the morning and seeing sunshine come through your window, that's a holy thing. You know, getting up and taking a walk and going with somebody, you know. Maybe maybe remembering a time when you didn't believe in God and how an act, a miracle, brought you to faith. That's a holy thing. Remembering these things, giving thanks for them, falling at the feet of Jesus, praising God and thanking him for those. That's, well, that's something I think that ought not to get old. And if our familiarity with grace breeds a level of contempt, that'd be a tragic thing. Grace ought to be special. It ought to remind us to praise God and give thanks and never to grow old. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.